Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today and let's get into this episode. Welcome back everyone and thanks for joining us today. Today we'll be exploring the deep connection between housing and safety. We have two speakers joining us today from Civil Rights Corps. Civil Rights Corps participates on the campaign's roundtable. Our roundtable consists of nearly 100 multi-sector organizations and they enable us to do a few things. One, they enable the campaign to raise awareness about the intersection of housing and other sectors. Two, these organizations really help us expand our multi-sector network. And three, they also help us reach a diverse array of new stakeholders. So they definitely play an important, essential role in the campaign and the campaign's work. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our speakers today. Um, please welcome Sam Washington and Thea Sebastian. And I will ask you both to tell our audience a little bit about yourself and why do you do this work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having us. My name is Thea and I am the policy director at a nonprofit organization called Civil Rights Corps. And just as a little bit of context, Civil Rights Corps is a organization based in Washington, D.C. that does both impact litigation and policy work to address criminal legal injustice, but also to really advance a holistic concept of what safety is. And it's that holistic, you know, forward-looking vision of safety that brings us onto the podcast today. So just you know, really quickly, why I do this work is in part because of my experiences long before I went to law school, long before I came to my current organization, where I worked as a teacher. And you know, I had the opportunity to work with kids who were just not being given the opportunities that they needed. You know, those opportunities to be learning, you know, high quality schools that were giving them the education that they deserve, but also just the very real safety issues that they were experiencing in their communities because of years and years of not investing in what their communities really needed to thrive. And that work very much is centered in what I'm doing today, which is trying to change how we think about the way that we are prioritizing spending as a country so that we are actually investing in housing and in health and in environmental quality and all these other really basic things and not on a criminal legal system that is just making so, so many people unsafe. Um, but that experience and really, you know, my work with kids is, is still what gets me up in the morning and very much drives all of the policy work that I still do. So let me hand things over to Sam. Thanks, Thea. Um, yeah, I know. So, so grateful to be here. Um, I'm Sam Washington. I'm the policy associate at Civil Rights Corps. Thea did a great job of introducing us, so I won't say too much more about the work that we do. But um, I born and raised in Washington, D.C., where I live and work now. And what brings me to this work is honestly just a, a belief that there's a better way forward, I think. I came to be interested in this, really looking at all the harm that the criminal legal system has done, and I feel very strongly about that, but I also see such hope and opportunity for building a better future for all of us. And yeah, I guess you could say that that's what gets me up in the morning. 
Yeah, well, thank you both for, for those responses. And um, I definitely can relate in just seeing, you know, in the community level, just how much these things impact just a person's overall well-being. And that's definitely tied into the mission of the campaign is this overall looking at housing from the perspective of all these different sectors, because we know that they are intersected. So definitely hearing that response from you all and just seeing how that also relates to the way that your organization and the work that you do connects to that intersectional purview of things. I think it's just, it's definitely the foundation of Opportunity Starts at Home. So um, I thank you all for that. And I feel like that leads into my next question for you all, which is that you joined the campaign's roundtable, And if you can tell us, you know, about why um, Civil Rights Corps joined the roundtable um, and why you joined the campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to take this. So, you know, really happy in the way you framed up that question because it is very central to the work that we do. You know, at a high level, what for us community safety really is, is this incredibly multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary effort that needs to involve investments in making sure that people have safe and affordable housing and making sure that they have high quality schools with wraparound supports. It means access to high quality nutrition. It means making sure that there are streetlights lighting your way home. It means investments in cash transfers or other measures that are going to make sure you have financial security, which is a long way of saying that Community safety is not just about what organizations working on the criminal legal system do. It has to be a joint effort involving organizations and advocates from all of those other spaces, from education, from youth justice, from housing, from health, from climate change, just all working together to make this vision happen. And what really excited us about Opportunity Starts at Home is that that's exactly what you are doing for housing, right? You were bringing together advocates from all of those other spaces into this kind of multidisciplinary table, which is exactly the approach that we need, you know, not only for housing, but for the work that we're doing. And I think just for this broader progressive vision that I think underscores so much of what we're doing. Uh, so again, it's just it's a real pleasure to be here today. But also, I think that the work that you are all doing is really trailblazing, and hopefully can be the template for what a lot of these other spaces can start to do moving forward. Yes. No, absolutely. And um, I mean, thank you for saying that about our work, but we definitely see the same for the work that you all are doing too. And just having such strong partnerships in the campaign is, has been our way of trying to get housing uh, priorities out there to push our policies and really talk about the legislation that we're, you know, that's tied in the campaign and our policy agenda. So definitely uh, can hear you and echo a lot of things that um, you've said about us back to you all and the work that you all do. And so jumping into it, you know, a lot of what the campaign work is, is about tying that connection between whatever sector and housing. And so with you all, we know that safety of individuals in a community is deeply tied to housing. So as you all are advocating for stronger, more equitable safety policies, can you tell us um, about the connection between safety and housing? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to jump in on this. I mean, I think the, the connections between safety and housing are just so many fold. And I think sort of to begin, you really have to define what is safety. And to me, safety is all about just the air we breathe, the world around us, and not having to worry about where our next meal is coming from, where we're going to lay our head down at night. Safety can't just be, you know, in the moment that violence and harm happens. So we know that unhoused people, people who are facing housing insecurity, are among the least safe in our society, you know, from daily threats of violence to increasingly extreme weather. And then, of course, being unhoused puts you at much higher risk for entering the criminal legal system for interfacing with the police. And that obviously is increasingly true as cities attempt to criminalize unsheltered homelessness. And then we also know that access to housing creates a revolving doors in and out of jail. We know that folks who have gone to jail are much more likely to experience housing insecurity and homelessness 
And we also know that experiencing housing insecurity and homelessness make you much more likely to go to jail. So we know that these systems just play off of each other routinely. But I think another element of this connection that's really under-discussed is the power of housing to actually prevent violence and harm before it happens. There's so much overwhelming research that I'm sure we'll get into more as we continue this conversation showing that investments into safe, stable, and affordable housing can greatly reduce rates of violence in communities and can really keep survivors of harm out of unsafe situations. So I think just from all levels, both where you're laying your head at night, but then also preventing all these downstream consequences, safety and housing just can never be separated. Absolutely. I think it's so, man, I don't know if it's a testament to like really pulling the research out there or um, the ways in which we're starting to talk about a lot of these um, these issues together. It's just so much of that. It's just exactly what we say through the campaign. So um, I think it's just remarkable to see that, you know, we are really creating a space and language where these things are just starting to be like, we're talking about them in, in together. Like this is how this impacts this. And this is why this is important here. Um, and just to hear so many of the points that, you know, we've pulled together, we even have some on our website. We talk about it this way when we're, you know, tailoring to certain um, audiences and certain conferences and meetings uh, when we're talking about this. Um, it's just so, it's almost refreshing to hear the way that we're talking about this. I know at the beginning of the campaign, one of our goals was to break down these sector silos because we feel like things are operating in like a separate space. Like this sector's here, this sector's here. And one of our biggest, you know, the aims, one of our main goals was to really create that connection and to break those sector silos. And then hearing the language, I'm just like, oh, that's something that definitely will come out of the mouths of myself or my colleague, Mike, um, that also works with me on this campaign. Um, and I just, it's, it's just a real testament to just how, we're really changing the way that we talk about a lot of these issues. And I think that holistic approach will really have an impact on the way these policies are then created to help, you know, people and really make sure that we're seeing people in a way that's like a full way, a whole way of their lives, like you were mentioning, um, and not just one piece of like something that they're dealing with that a lot of times they're dealing with a lot of these issues that at one time and we need to be able to see it in a holistic way and look at individuals in the complete um, in the completeness of what it is that they're dealing with um, and really address policies that way too. So definitely just like everything that you were saying, I was like, oh my, yeah, like through Opportunity Starts at Home, we talk about that. Um, and so I do want to talk about something that you guys recently did. So in one of your recent sign-on letters to the Appropriations Committee, you provided a multi-sector lens into the need to address safety, including approaching it through a public health lens. Can you tell us about the broad implications of safety and why and how are you expanding its definition? Definitely. I'm happy to happy to start that off. I think it because it really does go back to what I was saying between the ties between housing and safety and just this need to broaden the definition because we know that narrow problems lead to narrow solutions, right? So if we're seeing safety as just what happens in the moments of moment of violence and harm, we have so few tools in our toolbox. But if we zoom out and think about what does it look like to not just have crisis response, but to have a safer neighborhood, to have affordable housing so folks can stay in that neighborhood and be part of a larger community? What does it look like to have supportive schools that are able to keep people safe and health care so that they are actually able to have their physical needs met? And so I think it's just really looking at this sort of public health approach, both because we need investments into public health that's so crucial to people's safety, but also because public health gives us this notion of prevention and that violence and harm are things that shouldn't be dealt with just at the moment of illness, but that can actually be prevented before they occur. And so I think Thea also might have a little bit to say about this as well. I know that she's thought quite a lot about the, pub the role of public health in viewing safety. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think Sam really teed up what is the most important word that for me defines this entire approach and underscores this connection. 
which is prevention. So when we look at public health, one thing that just really struck me is that our greatest increases in life expectancy that we have had over the last about 150 years have come about not because of curative medicine, right? Not because of better surgeries, not because of those very late stage interventions. They've actually come about through these basic investments in public health, right? In better hygiene, in better air quality, in those you know basic building blocks that are preventing these kinds of health consequences much, much later in the process. And when I first came across that research and started to think about its implications for my work, I sat back and said, well, wait a second, why can't we take that same approach with safety? You know, what if we actually started to think about the social determinants of safety in the same way that we think about the social determinants of health? Where would that lead us? And the answer is that it just really led us to conversations like this one. So you know, one of the things that we do at Civil Rights Corps is we collect evidence on what are all of these kinds of basic investments that will prevent violence and harm before they ever happen. And those are those kind of fundamental social determinants that we try to work on. And we think that what public health really offers is certainly you know, the importance of mental health and physical health, but more than that, it really offers us up this entire framework. And you know, just one final point is for us, this entire kind of ethos of the public health approach or the social determinants of safety approach is the foundation of our work. But it is also an argument for an entirely different way of designing our governmental institutions to actually center this kind of preventative approach. And what I really mean by that is that so much of the criminal legal system at best is only coming in after the fact, right? After the harm has actually happened. And so what we really need are institutions that are really truly about safety, that are located in our departments of public health or standalone institutions that are fully outside of our departments of justice or all of those other entities that are connected to the carceral system. And you know, we think that once we start to get this concept of safety out of the criminal legal system and into the space of prevention and health, then we're all going to be so much better off. Um, and that's all communities across the country. Thank you. That is, you know, I was thinking so much about that prevention piece that you just um, brought up there and how much that's also such a big pillar of the campaign and the policy agenda. That's like our third bucket of just like, yes, we know that people need vouchers now, and we know that we also need to um, increase the supply of housing so that, you know, people can have it. It's accessible, it's affordable, but also what are we doing to make sure that people don't find themselves in these situations that they won't need prolonged assistance because we know that a lot of times it's a spiraling out of control. Maybe it's a medical bill. Maybe you lost hours at work. Maybe there was just something unexpected that happened and you weren't able to fit that cost because you weren't expecting it. So a lot of that prevention piece, uh, we talk about in the campaign in that third bucket, and it's, it's so refreshing to see that like that stream of line of thinking is also being done in so many different sectors. I mean, one of the things that like connected just immediately with housing was the social determinants of health. And so we were, when we were going to conferences and especially ones that were specific towards health, healthcare, we would just hear that over and over again. And it's really, I think, transformed the way they've like taken off with housing and other, you know, sectors and issues and how they've kind of placed that under this social determinants of health. Um, and just to see you guys think about that same way in safety, it's almost like there's just this transformation happening across sectors where there's, there's these broader definitions that include so much more, but also again, it makes us look at people and the wholeness that they, they come to with the, the problems that they are facing in the communities that they're facing um, in, in the communities that, you know, they face these issues. And I think the other important part that you talked about is just legislation and how we're trying to change that conversation and landscape. And when we go to them, you know, for us, it's, it's showing up with you guys and with, with our other partners 
to meetings and saying to policymakers, like, this is housing and this is why we're pushing all these policies, but also this is why it's important to X, Y, and Z sector. So if you care about education, if you care about safety, if you care about these other things, you really should care about housing as well. And and I think that that model is just really a way that, again, just looks at things in such a that looks at things in a broader sense of it, but also, you know, gives us a lot more room to just, again, talk about these different issues and really have conversations that look at a policy in a way that fully, you know, looks at that. Like, what is its impact here, here, and here? Um, And I think that that's extremely important, you know, moving forward, you know, as we are talking about policies and solutions. Um, I do want to touch on part of the letter where you urged Congress to um, enact several housing policies, many of them aligned with our policy, you know, objectives and efforts to expand affordable housing resources. Uh, so first, can you tell us about uh, the federal housing policies that you urged Congress to enact and why? And then also, um, could you tell us why the federal government plays a huge part in addressing safety? Yeah, Absolutely. Happy to kick this one off. And, you know, Sam, you should certainly add on. So I'd answer this question in two parts, which is the specific and then the general. So in terms of the specifics, you know, as you noted, we did send a letter to Congress about two months ago or so at this point, which was laying out what we have called a community safety appropriations agenda. So this letter had other organizations signing on, about 30 of them, mostly in the criminal legal advocacy space, but then also we had groups in housing, groups in public health, you know, groups that work on survivors' issues, so groups that are really representing a fair number of other allied spaces. And in this community safety appropriations agenda, we laid out a set of priorities across a number of different issues, across non-carceral crisis response and violence interruption, across public health, so both mental and physical health, across housing, across economic justice, and then also across education and youth investments. So within the set of investments that are focused on housing, we have a number of priorities that are very much in lockstep with what I know your organization and your coalition has been advocating for. So that includes expanding the number of housing vouchers that are currently available to reach an additional 200,000 people. It means actually putting money about on the order of $65 billion into Section 9 public housing and repealing the Fair Cloth Amendment to make sure that we can actually be improving and continuing to invest in the public housing that is so important to so many families. It means actually providing funding for the Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. It means funding the eviction protection grant uh, to at least $100 million just to make sure that people have access to counsel when they are being threatened with the loss of their housing because we know from so, so much overwhelming data how important having counsel in those proceedings actually is. It means fully funding the Community Restoration and Revitalization Fund that was proposed in Build Back Better. It means $4 billion for McKinney-Vento grants. And then it also means additional funding for the National Housing Trust that we continue to expand our housing stock. So those are a number of, obviously, very, very specific investments that we were advocating in line with our coalition partners. Um, But then just to zoom out to the general, you know, what I would lay out is that At a high level, what we would love to see the government do is to start treating housing like a right. You know, you have a right to free speech, you have a right to all of those things that are described in the Bill of Rights. Well, you should also have a right to a safe place to sleep every single night. This shouldn't be a revolutionary idea. And there are many ways to get us there. Maybe that means making sure that we have housing vouchers that are actually available on a universal basis to anybody who needs them. It means massive expansions of social and affordable housing across the country. It means also investing in newer models of housing like community land trusts that are not only providing affordable housing in perpetuity, but also starting to change some of the ownership structures at the local level that can allow communities to benefit 
when property values increase. And so to somewhat address the issues of gentrification that have been so deeply concerning to so many communities. All of these ideas need to be a part of our public housing agenda. And we also need to make sure that we have very specific programs in place for our most vulnerable people. You know, when it comes to housing and specifically to homelessness, we know from a policy perspective what works. Housing first as a specific policy has been shown to be extraordinarily successful um, and permanent supportive housing. So this idea of providing these kind of wraparound services and supports to people in addition to their actual housing, um, again, has been something that is achieving extraordinary results. So what this broader agenda is really about is treating housing like a right and making sure that we are truly lifting up those folks who most need our assistance in this space. And when it comes to what the federal government could be doing on safety, so number one, it could be making that shift to acknowledge that housing is so fundamental that making these investments is a cornerstone of education policy, is a cornerstone of environmental policy, right, and how we design these housing structures, and it certainly is a cornerstone of safety policy. Um, but I would also just say as a final note that another thing the federal government can do to really change its approach to safety in a way that acknowledges these intersections is to start creating institutions or even one institution that can be thinking in these kinds of interconnected interdisciplinary terms. And that's why one of our priorities as an organization is to support the creation of a division of community safety at the Department of Health and Human Services, which would really be coordinating research around these social determinants of safety, but also just injecting dollars into communities across the country so that they can be investing in whatever the safety needs in their communities are through this kind of preventative lens. Um, and that could include housing vouchers, right? It could include a lot of these sorts of programs, but in a way that is really targeted to meet people's safety needs. And you know, I think that if the federal government wants to take safety seriously, wants to really be preventing violence and harm, then that really is the path forward alongside these more generalized investments in the housing that so many people need. Thank you both for that. I think that those are, I mean, you made so many important points there about the policies just in general and why the federal government plays such a huge role. I mean, for us, sometimes we've gotten, especially when the campaign started, was kind of just like, hey, but isn't this like a city? Isn't this like a state issue? Shouldn't it be like local state um, legislators really addressing this? Um, and we just kept saying that, hey, we need the investments. Like, you need strong investments in housing. You need strong federal policies around these programs in order for it to go and impact the state and local policies that they have responsibilities in enacting and addressing. Um, so there is such an important federal role and we really hammer down on that through two, through two through the campaign because we've heard so much feedback around, well, you know, what who, who's responsible for what? But the federal government plays in a huge part. And for us, we've seen the disinvestment happen over decades and decades, and we see how that has had a strong impact on the policies that we push for. So, you know, we make it clear that the federal government, you know, there's definitely an important role to play there. And that also impacts what we see on the state and local level, and also why we do have our state campaigns there too, to make sure that we're doing that work and ensuring that whatever strategies we have, it also complements the things that they're also doing and the things that they're also pushing for. That's been unique state to state, but overall has been just a call generally for way more resources, more, more resources, more funding to aid um, in what they also have to do on the state level. So definitely, um, hearing everything that you all spoke about uh, just now as well. Um, and I do want to pivot a bit to the next question, um, which is about racial inequity. So uh, we know that racial inequities exist in every system. In housing, we talk about the deep connection between housing, racial inequities, um, and the ways that it spillover impacts into other sectors. Um, for us, you know, we, we've really built out a lot of 
um, our pages around um, really talking about it in a deep way. Uh, we've had a lot of podcast episodes about it um, at this point and also showcasing the work that our um, racial equity working group is doing. I think that's two podcast episodes ago. So if anyone's interested, that's also available for folks to hear. Um, but I did want to hear it um, and talk about this, you know, in regards to the work that you all do. So I know that your organization addresses the need to shift power to community-led movements, increasing the power of Black, Brown, and poor people. How does the Civil Rights Corps address this? today and how has that shifted over time? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. There is certainly a lot that could be said. So let me just go ahead and make maybe three points and then I will kick things over to Sam to say much, much more. So for me, the first point is that all of this work starts by acknowledging the exact sorts of inequities that you named and understanding how all of these different systems and inequities fit together. And what I really mean by that is you mentioned the connection between housing and racial justice. And that is certainly a story that, you know, fortunately more people, more and more people are beginning to understand, but includes this long history of redlining, of exclusionary real estate practices, right? That were keeping so many communities off limits right, that had led to this massive system of, you know, segregation that had, you know, pretty disastrous effects in terms of helping families to build wealth, which is why today, you know, Black Americans have only one-tenth of the wealth of white Americans. And those same sorts of inequities have also carried over into the criminal legal system and into so many other spaces. You know, the same sorts of the depletion of wealth that we have had through our housing policies, we now have through a criminal legal system that has bail bond premiums that people never get back even if their case is dismissed. Through fees and fines that we heap on people even if they never even get a trial in their case. I mean, the average person exiting incarceration, according to one study, owes over $13,500, which is less than what they will likely be making in one year of work. And so the point is, these inequities look very similar across these spaces, and they are so deeply interconnected that you know one cornerstone of our work has to just be acknowledging the way that these inequalities factor in so that we can make sure when we are designing policies, we are doing so in a way that can actually address these underlying issues and not just ignore them or to think that having these sort of broad-based policies that don't take those inequities into account is going to magically fix these problems. So that's the first point to make. You know, the second point is really, you know, building on what you said, a big part of our work has focused on who we are working with and who we are working for. So at Civil Rights Corps, all of our cases that we bring from our impact litigation shop are generally speaking on behalf of clients who are indigent and they are in lockstep with community-based organizations. And that kind of power shifting of centering those clients, of centering their stories, of making sure we are working alongside communities, I think is very important to our work. Because it's not only about the results that we get in the cases, it's that the process itself can be something that is empowering, something that really builds power and strength you know, in these communities that have been at the forefront of this kind of disinvestment that we were talking about. Um, and I will let Sam speak to some of those projects a little bit more. But what I would also say is that when we are working on national level policies, the way that we try to carry over that kind of ethos is to be working in support and alongside various movement organizations that are kind of leading this modern day charge on issues of racial justice. So, you know, back in 2020, we spent a lot of time working with the Movement for Black Lives on their Breathe Act project, which was really designed to take this holistic omnibus approach to how we could address systemic racism um, through this 130 page bill framework that covered everything from housing and economic justice and education justice to really reimagining how we can keep people safe just writ large in so many ways. And 
again, you know, centering these groups, kind of centering the voices, making sure that they are represented in the policy decisions that we're making um, is something that we do certainly try to take seriously. And the final point that I would just make is the part of what this work is too, is fitting together these various sites of injustice in a way that we can be getting at some of the core underlying issues. And what I mean by that is that there is this movement for racial justice. There are also many groups that are centering economic justice in their work. And one thing that we really try to do is just like look at kind of the intersection there and build power that can unite these racial justice organizations and demands with ones that are also about broader based economic justice. Um, because what we have seen in our cases and you know, at the local level is that those kind of coalitions can be extremely successful. And that's so often, right, the same systems that are creating inequities in one space are also creating you know, inequities in the other. Um, so I will stop there. Those are three things that came to mind for me, but Sam would love for you to hop in. Yeah, definitely. And I think sort of going back to like what what this question is about, sort of how our organization increases the power of black, brown, and poor people and how we have that as a goal. And I think that word power is is so important here because I think so often, you know, we're a DC based policy organization, these questions of sort of how are you how are you leading in these moments can be really complex. But I think uh, the work that we've been doing in Harris County, Texas, I think is really emblematic of how we try to approach efforts to build power and generally build power around the idea of a shared vision of safety that's outside of the criminal legal system. So in Harris County, we have been working for years on bail policy and working especially with an organization called Texas Jail Project that does a lot of direct advocacy in the Harris County area, which is where Houston is located. And as part of that, we've been hearing from them and other partners that there is a real need for a narrative shift in the area, that there were disparate groups that were doing work on, you know, transportation and housing equity, environmental issues, and then, of course, fighting the systems of policing and prisons in the area, and that all these separate spaces had this shared vision of safety, but they hadn't really been able to come together to articulate it. So we went down there and working with our partners, we started hosting just a series of conversations. We got folks together at happy hours and, you know, a local community center over pizza just to talk about what does safety look like to you and what sorts of investments do you want to see in your community? And this was largely folks who were doing this work, you know, not even on a professional level, but just as part of their community, as folks who cared. And so what's come out of that has been a really beautiful process around getting knee deep into the Harris County budget and thinking about, okay, which of these investments do we actually think are going to advance safety? And looking with that broader lens of, you know, safety in all these different areas and actually bringing together a vision of what a people's budget could look like. So we're still in that process. and But I think already we've seen just the power of having people be able to communicate. You know, we're doing such and such action on this day. You know, everyone call the, the commissioner's office so we can talk about the budget for the library or, you know, making sure that schools are getting enough funding also making sure that this money doesn't go towards, you know, investments that we think are counterproductive and will keep us less safe and our jails more full. So I think that that's sort of a project where just really bringing people together and letting the connections themselves build power is, is a good example of the kind of work that CRC is trying to do with, um, with building policy power. Thank you both so much for, you know, answering that question and just seeing the work that you guys are doing, especially when you say, um, you know, shifting power to community led movements. That's something that for the campaign, I think that's something that we definitely see a limitation. And we've discussed like why we, we see that through the campaign, because it was built out to be a national campaign. And 
uh, we're bringing in organizations in this way that's more organizational based. Um, but we are trying to figure out ways, you know, through talking to our racial equity working group, through connecting with the broader NLIHC about like, how do we connect those pieces for the campaign? Because we know that it is so powerful to have that, to be, to have that be a part of the campaign in some ways. And a lot of ways we see that with our state campaigns um, and we're able to, you know, support them um, and really talk about that through, you know, the work that we're doing with our campaign work. Um, but we've, again, we've had that discussion about like, how do we build powers and communities through the campaign and the structure and the foundation that we started with. And so hearing feedback from groups like you all is definitely something that's helpful for us as we continue to have these conversations in our racial equity working groups. So I just want to thank you both for just sharing that. Um, before I want to ha I do have a, like a follow-up question to that um, because we, we just saw in 2020 such a transformational shift. We saw such a call, such a revolution, you know, and, and really it was coming from a place of pain and trauma, but from it, we saw the power of coming together to build a movement, to talk about, you know, what is really happening and what needs to be done and how we can address these issues. So I am wondering with a lot of different organizations, and again, as we are evolving our conversation, you know, at Opportunity Starts at Home, um, is, is what were the shifts, if there was any, um, in addressing the issues, you know, especially, you know, during 2020 and thereafter post um, to looking at the ways that you guys even look at safety or address certain things in the organization. So just wondering if there was any shift there, if that really impacted the work that you all do in any way. And if you can share, because I just, I've, I've also been trying to create this space where, you know, we really do share what's happening in organizations after this. And it's not one of those things that have like come and gone. And, you know, it's like, it, it, it can't be. And we want to make sure that um, we're having those conversations in spaces and even just see you know, how other organizations may have been transformed or shifted, you know, during that, you know, very, you know, important and almost transformational and revolutionary part in our in our history that we're still dealing with today. So that's my questions to you all would be, do you see any changes in the way that you address these issues as the nation experienced the pandemic and the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery that happened in 2020? And so we'd definitely love to hear um, your feedback on that and what you guys have been thinking about or shifting in, or in your organization around this. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I have a couple of thoughts. Happy to share those. And then Sam, you should absolutely dive in. What I would say is that for us, 2020 was certainly a transformational year, you know, to use the word that you just did. And I would say one of the big transformations was that when we were brought in, you know, to work deeply with the Movement for Black Lives on the Breathe Act project, it was an amazing opportunity to start thinking in really specific, concrete policy terms about this paradigm shift that we have been talking so much about. You know, which is to say that you know, for years we've been talking about the need to approach safety in a different way, you know, by investing in communities, not in jails, prisons, and policing systems. But you know, when rubber hits the road, you know, when pen has to actually hit paper, it can be difficult to know exactly where to start. Like, what does that actually mean that we do tomorrow in city council, in the state legislature, much less on Capitol Hill? And so through that work, we started to really think about that particular question. And I would say that that particular effort and that evolution has guided our work ever since. And so, you know, as a societal, at a societal level, I think one of the shifts that happened in 2020 was that, you know, out of all of this like anger and pain and all of that, you know, trauma that was going on, there also became the seeds of policy ideas that can ultimately, I hope, address some of those injustices. And a lot of the kind of the current hunger around non-carceral crisis response, around these kinds of institutional shifts, around massive funding for violence interruptions, around taking more of a prevention-oriented approach, that was all born out of those protests, right? It was born out of that movement. It didn't come from thin air. 
And I think that the reason for hope is that that hunger is still there. Those policy ideas are still there. You know, we are in such a different place than I think that we were even three years ago. What I think the challenge is that your question was also getting at is how to sustain the momentum. Because the truth is, in 2020, you know, when we were first starting to do this work, it felt like the country was in a very different place. The country was much more open to these kinds of innovative ideas about safety and how we could actually address criminal legal injustice. And unfortunately, there are many ways today where it feels like we have backtracked and some of that momentum and that enthusiasm has sapped, right, due to kind of many other forces. And so I think kind of the critical juncture we are at right now is that we are going to be doing a lot of rebuilding and have been doing rebuilding as we hopefully emerge from this pandemic. And I think the question is, how can we do that rebuilding in a way that is really centering all of those kind of bold ideas, those paradigm shifts that we need to make, and to make sure that we don't let all of that kind of hunger and desire, you know, somehow get forgotten, right, in just like this broader direction of where the country is going. So not trying to be pessimistic or optimistic, but just say that I think that's kind of where we have been. I think that's our challenge. And that's certainly, you know, the kind of work that Sam and I are, are trying to do. So Sam, let me let you add on to this. No, I think I think that was that was great. And I, I don't know that I have anything in particular to add. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Um, I really, um, even just hearing, you know, where the shift has been and what you guys are working through, you know, I really am hung up on that last bit too, about just like being honest about the challenges and the limitations, you know, for the campaign, uh, we definitely put in there, like when we talk about our policy agenda, uh, we know that, you know, part of it is that it's, it, it won't advance, it'll, it'll advance racial equity in many ways, um, but also, like, it's, it doesn't stop at our policy agenda either. Like, there's also just, like, a lot more work and deep intentional work that still has to happen. Um, but it's definitely shifted, I think, a lot of the the ways in which we even approach or talk about it or the people that we say, like, hey, you know, what 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 are we doing in this issue? Like, how are we looking at it, you know? Um, it may even be crazy to think that in some, some ways um, there's, like, a... Because I get a bit interested when um, I hear like, oh, we're applying a racial equity lens to something. Um, but it really has, you know, brought out that question of just like, how are we addressing racial equity? Like, we need to ask ourselves that question. And are we doing the absolute most and best at doing that in the organization and in the work that we do, um, which is you know, something that we are exploring and we've been exploring through our racial equity working group um, as also a way to keep us accountable. Um, but I think Part of that, too, um, is the honesty in, in really being upfront about what the challenges and limitations have been, uh, while also speaking about the ways in which you were able to advance and shift in that way, too. Um, so just really, you know, again, a lot of the feedback that I hear from groups is like what I can take back and really bring into the campaign, too, the things that we should be asking ourselves and working on as well. Um, and so I just, yeah, just thank you so much for, for your response. Um, and I'm going to go back to some of the work that you guys have done because um, you did put out um, and I did see that you released a community safety um, and the American Rescue Plan Policy Guide in 2021. Um, among several ways to spend the funding, the guide outlines ways to address affordable housing. Um, so can you tell us more about that guide? For sure. Um, and yeah, I think I think to start, I, I definitely want to drill in on the housing investments particularly, but I think this is a, a good place to go back to what we were saying about building power, because I think the goal of this guide was was really to give people, A, just more information. This is, you know, a large bill, a huge amount of money that's flowing into our communities. And we know that those investments hold great potential and they also, you know, hold a lot of potential problems and a lot of opportunity. But we want to make sure that folks are understanding what this money is and how it can be used and that they ultimately should have control over how the, these funds are spent. So I would say at the core of the guide is the message that community control is the most important thing. And so throughout, we have process recommendations from, you know, participatory budgeting initiatives 
to just other ways that communities can meaningfully guide how this money is spent. So I, I really want to center that because I think at the end of the day, every jurisdiction in this country is going to have different needs. And as we know, so many of them will have housing needs. But I, I think that just making sure that folks understand what this money is, and especially in this guide, we focused on this $350 billion pool of money, the fiscal recovery fund that is large and flexible and is going to cities, states, counties, towns, really all levels of government are receiving this. And it's so important that, you know, everyday people understand that their communities have and are continuing to receive this money and that it should be spent on safety and especially safety that will really work in their community. And so diving into that, we do have a whole section on housing because as we've been saying this whole time, safety is just really, or housing rather, is really the cornerstone of safety. So in the guide, we show just a few pieces of the overwhelming evidence that increasing access to affordable housing, whether that's building low-income housing units, vouchers, and then especially efforts that are focused on support, supportive housing and housing that has wraparound um, services for folks who are experiencing, whether it's behavioral health crises, chronic homelessness, disability, all of those things show that there is huge reductions in the rates of violence and harm that they experience. And so much of the guide is going through how all these investments that the American Rescue Plan can fund are actually proven to reduce violence and harm and are much, much more effective than the destructive investments we tend to think of when we think of public safety. And so another thing that we lift up beyond just investments in sort of more traditional forms of affordable housing are the idea of community land trusts. And this is something that the federal government has explicitly said that ARPA funds can be used for. And for those who don't know, community land trusts are nonprofit community-led organizations that are designed to ensure community control and stewardship of land. And they can be used for a variety of developments, you know, commercial and retail projects, but their main function is to ensure long-term affordable housing for residents of a given community and ensuring, like we've been saying this whole time, that control stays within the community. And so I just wanted to uplift that as one of the investments that we have in this guide. But there are a multitude of different ones that can really go towards all sorts of affordable housing as well as neighborhood improvement projects, you know, greening vacant lots, putting up more street lights, parks, things like that. And I think all of those really go to the same goal of what does it look like to invest in place and to invest in communities where people are able to actually thrive. And so that is really the purpose of this guide is to pull together that evidence, that information about what is this money. And then, like I was saying, those process recommendations. So really diving into how does it look to equitably understand the needs of your community and invest in those things. So, um, so yeah, that is the guide. And Thea, I don't know if you have anything that you'd want to add about the guide, its contents, or really the goals that we had with it as well. No, nothing to add. I think you covered it. Thanks. And I do want to throw out there because I think you you mentioned a lot of it, but any, you know, gaps to fill out in terms of the local efforts too, because again, we do have state campaigns and I know there's a lot of, there's a ton of other state campaigns on the NLIHC side that would be interested in just hearing a lot of this. So I know that you talked a bit about it, but wanted to like provide a, like a direct question if there was anything on those local efforts that you provided in the guide that you wanted to lift up as well. Sure. Um, yeah, sorry. So do you mean just like local housing efforts or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. So I think the guide itself doesn't go into specific um, like housing related projects that are like, yeah, that have been um, fun, like, yeah, local housing processes. But I think that one thing that I know that Thea and I are both super excited about from the process standpoint is um, the Seattle People's Budget. 
And I think that really goes towards these sorts of like holistic investments. And that's a project where they got folks from different sectors to put together, okay, what is an actually like equitable investment strategy that is looking at what the actual needs of the people are and building from that base, not looking from the top down, okay, what can we like piece out to all these different areas? And so I think that that would be one. Thea, I don't know if you have any sort of more specific, I'm trying to think of housing specific um, projects that we lifted up in this guide. No, I would say offhand, what you know, the guides are more focused on is just parsing through the legislation itself to help walk advocates through the process and policymakers through the process of turning these particular funds toward those projects. But you know, we did release these guides fairly early in the process to try to make them available, which was really before you know, a fair number of those decisions were being made. You know, we certainly have heard, um, so not in the context of the guide, but just through our work, that there certainly are many jurisdictions that have been turning these funds toward permanent supportive housing, toward various other investments that are certainly discussed in the guide. And we think that's incredibly exciting and, you know, would love to think about doing some sort of a follow-up perhaps, right? We can you know, spotlight some of those cases a bit more. And one of the other small points that I did just want to lift up is that you know, it's slightly less relevant for a lot of these housing investments, but just that this guide on the American Rescue Plan is part of this longer series that we have where we do try to break down federal pots of money and how they can be used to advance community safety. So we also have a guide that we released on the infrastructure bill that was passed on a bipartisan basis last year. And you know, certainly if there are further investments through any version of Build Back Better or just any other legislation that could come, we certainly will plan on releasing those guides. Um, but just thought that that was you know, important to name because this is very much a living series and you know, we hope that if people have specific thoughts on ways that we could be useful, on guides that they want to see, on policy questions that they have about federal legislation, you know, bring them to us directly, please, because maybe there's some way that we can answer the question or create a resource that would then help other people who might have the same one. That is fantastic because the next question is literally around resources. So for people, you know, who want to learn more, for people who listen to this podcast and, you know, they're interested on, they're interested in safety, they're interested on seeing the connections of, of housing and safety and just what you mentioned, Thea, on, you know, a series that you guys would, would um, put out there and are still working on, you know, what are some other sources that they can access um, I'll definitely try to like find a link of the guide and place it in the podcast kind of description for folks to access it. Um, but yeah, just if there's any other sources that are coming to mind that you can share with our audience, I think that would be great for them to also, you know, be able to tap into this information as well. Definitely. And we will certainly make sure that you have those links that I think, um, like Thea said, we have Another guide that's similar in sort of tone to this uh, American Rescue Plan guide that's specifically focused on the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. This was the big infrastructure bill that was passed at the end of last year. And that's really looking at, like I was saying, sort of the intersection of safety, not just with housing, but with the larger built environment around us. And that includes sorts of more, you know, what we consider piecemeal sorts of investments like street lights and fixing up vacant lots and things like that. But then it also goes into the connections between climate change and sort of mitigating the effects of rising temperatures and how important that will be as part of safety going forward. And so I think that is one resource that I think would be super, super interesting to anyone who cares about how the sort of built environment around us can keep us safe or prevent us from being safe. I think another resource um, for folks that would be interested is an evidence guide that we have that's forthcoming that's really tying together all this, uh, this sorts of research that we've been talking about that shows the deep connection between housing and violence, between healthcare, investments into youth, and violence interruption, 
and just showing that we have this overwhelming evidence showing that there is a better way forward on safety. And I think that would be super interesting to anyone who cares about the intersections between these social provisions and their effects on violence and harm. And then one more resource that I don't think we really will have a ton of time to go into, but I did want to uplift in this space is a forthcoming guide to survivor safety. And that is going to be a really detailed analysis with, you know, model bill language and a really step-by-step guide for how to keep survivors safe outside of the criminal legal system. And that's just a, a thing that we didn't get to discuss as much here, but I think is so important that we know that having access to safe housing and stability more generally is so important to survivors of harm, whether that's survivors of intimate partner violence, survivors of state violence and really running the gamut of all victims of harm generally. Um, And so I think that that is just going to be another really important one for folks who have not thought about how responses outside the criminal legal system, responses that really center autonomy are going to be so, so important for keeping us safe going forward. Um, So yeah, Fia, are there any other resources that you think that we should be lifting up? I think that was a pretty good summary, but again, we just encourage everyone to reach out to us directly if they have any questions or are there any other resources that they would like to see. And would also just make a quick plug that we do have a newsletter that we use to distribute all of the resources we come out with. And so, you know, we're happy to provide that sign up form for anybody who just wants to be alerted whenever we have one of these new guides coming out in case it happens to be useful to their work. Thank you both so much. And I will be on the lookout for, especially that last guide that you were talking about, Sam, and um, we'll be sure to uplift it and send it to our networks as well so that they check it out. Um, And anything that you guys spoke about that, um, that I have the links for, again, we'll just put it all in the description box for you all to to access as well, as well as some contact information too, just in case um, anyone wanted to reach out. And my last two questions, you know, as we're wrapping this up for you both would just be, and I'll just put them both together, which is what is next for Civil Rights Corps? And I feel like you guys talked a little bit about that. Um, And then also for you both, um, what are you most excited for in this moment? Um. I think, yeah, I've I've said a bit about what's next for Civil Rights Corps in terms of, you know, specific products that we're, we're coming out with. But I think more broadly, our aim is just to continue deepening these sorts of relationships. Ultimately, we're never going to be successful when we're just pushing in our individual silos. So I think that that also is what makes me really excited is that I see when I look around, I see certainly a lot of problems and a lot of really daunting challenges, but I also see a growing recognition that something has to change and that all these issues that we're facing are deeply interconnected and that we need to come together and make a, make a push and make a a concerted effort to say that it's time to put power back in the hands of people to distribute resources in our abundant society more equitably and to change the the structures of our communities and to deepen those bonds. And I think that the more and more I see folks who are working on vastly different issues acknowledge those overlaps, I that brings me a lot of hope and is hopefully where Civil Rights Corps is, is going next. So Yeah, I would very much second everything that Sam just said a moment ago and could confirm that hopefully that is, in fact, where we are going. You know, what I would just add is, is two small things. So first, we have focused a lot over this past year on creating policy resources that are essential or at least hopefully useful for moving this work forward. But one of the things that we are trying to turn our attention to now is telling the story about what these resources are, what these policies are, and to start writing about these ideas, to build campaigns around these ideas, and to really 
just focus a bit more on kind of the storytelling and you know narrative side of his work that is so important. And that is such a great place to be bringing in partners like yourselves and like so many of the folks who are probably listening. And the second point that I raise is really just building on what Sam said. This desire for intermovement collaboration is so, so strong and across so many different issue spaces that one thing we are really thinking through at Civil Rights Corps is how we can create more connective tissue in a way that is somewhat formalized, in a way that is long lasting, to harness this desire for collaboration. So, you know, the community safety appropriations agenda, I think, is a good example of a project that is very multidisciplinary and has groups from different spaces. So one thing we are looking to do over the next year is build that out into more of a full-fledged coalition that hopefully can take a lot of the insights from what Opportunity Starts at Home is really doing, um, but just centering this concept of safety really at its core. Uh, with the goal being that, again, we can just find ways to make sure that all of our movements are working together or lifting up one another's issues, but also really are able to speak about these intersection points, like all of the things that we have spoken about here today. And with that, I just want to thank you both so much for joining us today, Thea and Sam. Just thank you so much for the wealth of information and knowledge and just the work of telling us what it is that you guys are, are doing, the great work that you all are doing. Um, we want to thank everyone for joining us in this episode. We hope that you were able to take something away from it. Um, again, we'll have some resources in the description. So we just hope that you enjoyed it and you learned something new about safety and the connection between safety and housing. Um, and so we thank you so much and we'll see you guys in the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>